Good morning, everyone. It's great to have you with us today. Welcome again. As Pastor Robert has already said, we're glad that you're with us today and looking forward to spending some time in Scripture with you. I invite you to take a Bible, if you will, please, and turn to James chapter 2. Now, to help you understand, James is way at the end of the book, okay? And if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. As a matter of fact, if you don't own a Bible, excuse me, we'd be honored if you'd take it home, all right? So uh, that's where it is, way towards the back. The page numbers for the pew Bibles are on the screen behind me. And um, while you're looking for James, or maybe you're looking in your smartphone for it today, uh, I, I want to relate something that happened to me, uh, oh, maybe five or six years ago. I th- as a matter of fact, I think I've told some of you this before, but it's a fascinating, just, well, it's... It's a slice of life that probably you've experienced something similar to this. I was driving north on Highway 51, okay? I'd come from downtown. You can think, see if you can follow this in your mind's eye. You go up over the viaduct. You come down past, you know, where the fire station is. You keep going. The hospital is going to be off to your left. You get all the way up to Pershing, and Culver's is on the right-hand side. You with me where you are right now? And on the left, there's that guy that dances all the time. <laughs> Y'all have seen him, Right? I don't think they pay that guy enough money. I don't know what they pay him, but I'm telling you, they don't pay him enough money to do that all day long in this bitter cold. And particularly dressed with what he's... Oh, anyways. So I'm, I'm there, and um, there's a red light. And there's, there's just two cars, me and another guy. And the guy's right in front of me. And I'm looking at his car. It's a fairly nice-looking car. And across the back on the bumper sticker... He's got the name of a very prominent church in town. And I'm thinking, oh, that's a cool idea. This guy obviously goes to this church, and maybe that'd be a good thing for us to do at First Christian. We could buy bumper stickers, and, you know, we could have everybody put on their bumper, this is where I go to church, I attend such and such, or join me, or whatever, you know, at First Christian Church. And so I'm sitting there thinking about, oh, that's really cool. How much would it cost? Would we give the bumper? You know how you have those things run around in your head just like that? Would we give them away? Would we, you know, would we raise money for a missions endeavor? And, and as I'm thinking that, and the light is still red, the, the car door, the driver's door opens, and he's got a bucket in there that's about this round, about that deep, and I discovered it was full of cigarette butts, because this is what he did. While the light was red, he took that bucket and flipped it out and piled it right there on the road. The light turned green, he closed the door, and off he went, and I'm looking at a pile of cigarette butts about like this and about that thick, and okay, I, fair enough, whatever the case may be, but I'm going... I am not buying bumper stickers for the people at First Christian Church. (laughs) You know why I'm not buying bumper stickers or why we're not putting bumper stickers on our cars here at First Christian Church? I have no idea how you act outside the walls here. And here's the truth. I'm not putting a bumper sticker on my car that says First Christian Church because I don't know how I'm going to always act. Huh, that's what James, the book we're looking at today, is going to bring to our attention, James chapter 2. If you're new with us, let me tell you where we are in James and what we're doing. We've been in a sermon series now for a number of weeks, looking at the book of James. And just to kind of give you a little bit about the author, so you can kind of grab a hold of what's going on. James, uh, as he's writing this book, we believe, was probably the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. The church at this point is a number of years old. Uh, They've moved the the 
congregations are growing all around the Mediterranean. He is actually Jesus' half-brother. When we say half-brother, you know the story. Mary is born by a work of, I mean, Jesus is born by a work of God and Mary, and she has a fiancé. Jesus comes along, then the fiancé, Joseph, is standing there at the manger scene. You've seen it at Christmas every year. And then they have, so to speak, if you will, a typical marriage from that point on, and they have a number of other children besides Jesus. So Joseph is Jesus' adopted dad. Joseph is James' biological dad, same mother. And he, they grew up in the same household, and James really, in many ways, takes over the ministry of Jesus in Jerusalem after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And in chapter 5, he says, I want you to remember this. And he has a number of things he wants to, that the people who are reading the book to, to remember. And so we've entitled this series, Remember This. What are some of the things we should remember? Well, look at one of them. In James chapter 2, beginning at verse 14, he says this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. And I will say, show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God? Oh, good, even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You foolish person, don't, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did? Now Abraham, remember, at this point in Christian faith and the development of the church, Christianity is still primarily Jewish. Now, James was directly responsible for bringing Gentiles into the life of the church so that it was no longer just a Jewish sect by the time he was done with his life. But for the most part, they consider themselves to be a Jewish form of faith that is relating to Jesus Christ. So they are Christians, um, but they are all relating back to Abraham. So he says, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. His faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. He was called God's friend. A person that is considered righteous is considered righteous by what? By what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? That's a reference to a story back at the beginning of Israel's life when they were trying to make their way to the promised land and they sent two spies, Joshua and Caleb, to go and spy out Jericho and see if they could overtake the city. And there was a prostitute there who gave them protection and it was through her that they managed to conquer the city, all right? So that's the story there. So he said, she was considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So I need to tell you, as we look at particularly this passage of scripture in James today, and we're going to look at more James next week, so read again, read the whole book of James this week. But this passage right here has been problematic for the church for at various points in the church's history, capital C. As a matter of fact, um, Martin Luther, the founder of the Lutherans, we have lots of folk from our church that maybe have grown up Lutheran, 
Uh, he had significant problems with this passage of scripture, and he wanted James taken out of the Bible. Here's why. He had this dramatic conversion experience as, as an adult where he understood something new about how God was working in his life. Up until that conversion experience, he'd always wondered, how am I going to be good enough for God to accept me? What am I going to have to do? And so he'd work and he'd work and he'd do all kinds of things like, you know, sleep on a, on a hard plank without a blanket in the middle of winter, trying to prove that he was, he was going to be good. He would offer sacrifices to God. And he made his way through that, all those kinds of things, until one day he has this brilliant revelation that in many ways is tied to Ephesians chapter 2, where it says, it's by grace you've been saved, not through works. Ephesians chapter 2 says that you get to know God, you get to follow God, you get to be called Christian through an act of grace in Jesus Christ, and it's not by something you need to do to earn salvation. It was a dramatic turning point in the life of the church. It caused, in many ways, among other things, the split between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. Um, but I will tell you this, Roman Catholics today, if you ask um, good, solid Roman Catholic theologians, how are you saved? They will come back and say, by grace. So in many ways, the, the two streams of the church are in agreement on this matter today. But Martin Luther, when he came across this, hey, I get to be saved by grace. It's a, it's a faith moment in my life where I accept that, that grace. He said, oh, I don't know if I like this business in James where it talks about all the things I have to do. Well, as it turned out, we kept it in scripture and we brought, as he was swinging the pendulum one way, it's come back and then we say we're saved by grace and then we do something with that grace. And so let, let me, let me kind of give you some understanding of this by asking you something to think about. What's the worst thing you've ever done? Don't tell it out loud. <laughs> What's the worst thing you've ever done? Do, can you remember what that was? Got it in your head? I've got really good news for you today. In Jesus Christ, because of his work on the cross, there's grace for that. Amen. That can be forgiven. All right? If you decide to accept that work on his, on, on his part for you, that, that mess up is forgiven. All right, let's take it one step further. What's the worst thing that's ever been done by someone else? You can think of all kinds of atrocities where one person has treated another person or one group has treated another person. Uh, there's plenty of examples of places where the world has gone, you know, run amok. Uh, if I could think of something that's really bad, I would, my immediate attention goes back to what happened 10 days ago when ISIS, the folk from ISIS, doused that guy in gasoline and put him in a cage and then ran a line of gasoline through the sand and set that on fire and burned him. I have chosen not to look at the video, but I've seen some of the stills. And you see his orange jumpsuit wet and you know that he knows what's about to happen. I mean... Could there be anything more horrific than that? I, I don't understand this. But if the person who lit that flame would come to God in Christ, do you know there's grace to cover that? Now, for me, I don't, want, I don't know that I, I... Personally, I'd like to see them burn in the flames of hell. I mean, that's my visceral response. But God is not like that. That's why I'm not God and he's not Wayne Kent. I mean, God is, aren't you glad for that? 
Some of you said amen way too loud at that moment. <laughs> Do you know there's grace to cover that? As a matter of fact, Peter the Apostle, when he was thinking about something similar, he said that, that God is not like us at all. He, he, he said in 2 Peter chapter 3 that God is significantly different, that God is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish. Now, I'd say I want most people not to perish because there's some people like that ISIS group, I'd say, it'd be okay if they perish, but, but God's different than me. Praise be to God. God's not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. And if they come to repentance, then they're forgiven. There's a grace to cover that. And kind of that's the good news of the story. You go, okay, whatever I've done, there's grace to cover that. Whatever I do in the future, I suppose there's grace to cover that too. And you go, well, can I just live like what I want to live? Uh, the Apostle Paul asked the same question in the book of Romans when he has this rhetorical question in light of grace. He says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? In other words, I'm glad my sins are forgiven, so because my sins are forgiven, then I might as well just continue living how I want to live because there's grace to cover that. His answer is, no, you don't get to do that. You don't get to keep living the way you were living in the past just because there's grace. There are constraints to behavior. There are ways in which we should live, and James says the same thing. What he's saying in chapter two here is that this grace we receive, that we receive in faith, then it should impact our lifestyle. You have grace, and then we live differently reflecting that grace. In other words, our faith, which we accept that grace through faith, that that faith should impact all of who we are and the way in which we live. Not just saying, well, I get grace, so I get to live how I want to live. No, I live in a way that should reflect the kindness, the grace, the gentleness, the appropriate responses that Jesus would have in each situation. We have a problem in our culture with this because, well, I think we have the wrong view of who we are. Can I, can I kind of explain to you how I think we see ourselves? Uh, we would say that this is a very 21st century viewpoint of who we are, that this is me right here. This is all of who I am. And if you look at all of who I am, then there's, um, oh, my children are very important, and um, I, 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 I'm married, that's good, or I'm single, or this is my you know, personhood status when it comes to that business. I've got some money, or maybe not enough, but I have some. I've got a house and a car. Oh, I've got a job. Now, that kind of defines in many ways who I am along with my kids. Maybe those need to be really big. And then I have my faith over here. And we say, okay, so that's all of who I am. And it's almost in many ways a very compartmentalized life. So that we say, okay, my children, they're really, really important to me. So their influence is pretty broad, okay? Excuse me, my, my, my job, because I'm there every day, is pretty big. It may not be quite as big as my kids. Uh, my hobby, well, it, I think about it a lot. My finances, um, well, they're about this big, but I wish they were that big, right? And my marriage, oh, if, you, if you only knew about my marriage situation or my singleness situation. I'm just gonna put a circle around it and say, it's there. 
You know, some people would say that, right? And, 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 and then, oh, here's my faith. Okay, my faith is over here. And it's, it's important, and it has some influence, and it has this in kind of influence over my life this much right here. And we say, that's who I am. That is not biblical. That's 21st century. But it is not biblical at all. Because what our lives should really be like is that, according to Scripture, if we say that we have received grace, that we are people of faith, then our lives should be like this. Here's me in the middle of everything. And this on the outside, there's my faith, my willingness to believe that I've received grace. And in that, within that faith then, oh, there's my kids, my vocation, my hobby, my marriage, my money, my house. All of that is within the context then of this which has the most influence of who I am. It's a much more holistic situation where I say, I want grace. I want my faith that I've received grace. I want that to cover every aspect of my life. My every action. I want to do it through the lens of how would a follower of Jesus Christ live this so that when I'm declaring my faith and I get to the corner of Pershing and 51 and I got to figure out what to do with my cigarette butts, I'm not dumping them on the ground. Does that make sense? Well, how's that going for you? James says, well, if you want to know how to do it, look at Abraham. Look, read with me again. Acts chapter 2, verse 20. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions were working together. His faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. He was called God's friend. You see, a person is considered righteous by what? By what they do and not faith alone. Do you know Abraham's story? Abraham's story is summed up in verse 24 where uh, James says, well, Abraham was righteous and uh, if you want to know how to be righteous, you have to have faith and you have to have actions. And that's what Abraham did. Here's the story of Abraham. He and his wife were really old. I mean, when I say really old, not old like me in mid-50s, okay, where I don't have kids anymore. You know, my kids are grown. They, 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 were, they were, you know, they were really old. They were in their 90s and they still didn't have children. And they'd more or less given up on that idea, which was a problem for them in those days, as it would be for our day, time as well. But it was very significant then because there was no social, you know, no government to hold up or no, you know, you, you know they're, they're alone. And one night, Abraham goes outside his tent. He's looking up at the stars and he hears God say, uh, Abraham, you're going to have as many heirs as there are stars in the sky. You can't count them all. You're not going to be count all the people who are in your family. And Abraham goes, yeah, right, right. And through a series of events and circumstances, actually that came to be. Within a year or so, Sarah got pregnant. And when Abraham was 100 years old, his son was born. Can you imagine the party they had? I got a son, I got a son. <laughs> Anyway, 
So they got really excited. This, this little guy's name is Isaac, and you just wonder what it was like to hold Isaac at 100 years old and say, this is, you know, this is my family. Well, the little boy grows up, maybe somewhere around eight years old, no older than 12, God says, hey, Abram, I want to, I want, Abraham, I want to see how well you follow me. I want you to go up in the mountain. I want you to sacrifice your son to me. Whoa. I believe you, God, but uh, should I do that? So up the mountain they go, and Abraham comes right to the point where he's willing to sacrifice his son, literally put the knife in him and say, this baby, this boy is yours, God. And at that moment, they discover there's a ram, a sheep, caught in a thicket. And God says, use that instead. And God says, because you're willing to follow me, because you're willing to believe that I can provide you with a child, and that if I took that child, you could have another one? Huh, that's really good. I'll call you righteous. Now, I got to tell you, I struggle with that story. I don't like, I mean, I have children. I don't like the idea of saying I'm going to sacrifice them in an effort to display my allegiance to God. I'm thankful that God's never, doesn't call us to do that. But I hope I'm brave enough that I'm willing to go where God calls me to go and willing to act in the ways that God calls me to act. And for some in this room, it's really the story of Abraham is particularly potent because you are dealing with the same issues that Abraham and Sarah dealt with. If I can be kind of real pastoral for a moment. How does it go for couples who say we're people of faith and at the same time they're saying, We've prayed and yet we can't seem to have any children. Or we had one and we want more and they're not coming. Why, isn't, why aren't our bodies acting the way they're supposed to? That's an unbelievably painful, quiet, silent, confidential pain. I've had couples come to me, numbers of them over the years. I often say, Wayne, will you pray with us? And we've seen a number of babies being born. Really cool stories. Let me, let, can I tell you one that kind of started this whole thing for me about this awareness of the struggles of infertility? Back in the mid-'80s, uh, Leslie and I, we traveled, as many of you know, with a band. And there were really two bands that worked simultaneously. We would be in Europe. Our sister band would be in the U.S., and then we'd switch places. And the guy who was in charge of both bands, I led one band, but he was really my boss, was a guy by the name of Don Moen. Perhaps you know that name. Don wrote hundreds of songs. He sold five million albums just as a solo artist in recent years. He's doing really well, and uh, he's doing really well. But <laughs> he wrote a song, uh, maybe, maybe you know this, God will make a way where there seems to be no way. He works in ways we cannot see. He will make a way for me. That's the song, perhaps his most famous song. Anyway, so we're working together, and He's a few years, he and his wife Laura are a few years older than Leslie and I, and after a couple of years of working together, it kind of dawns on me, man, they've been married for 11 years or so, and they don't have any kids, and why is that? And we've been married two years, and we're starting to think about what's going to happen, and we're going to start, you know, and so this sense of maybe I should be praying for them, and so I started praying, God, I, it's none of my business to ask them those questions, but it's got to be, would you give them a baby? And so after a few months, I, or I, I shared that with Leslie. We should be praying for Don and Laura. And it became so heavy, if you will, so kind of overwhelming that, it, that I went to the group we were traveling with and I said, 
uh, I, I'm a little bit out of line here, but I think that maybe we as a group should pray for our friends, Don and Laura Moen, that they would have a baby. They've never talked to us about that, but I'm going to do this. I, on, on Thursdays, for the next few months, I'm going to fast lunch. And if you want to join with me, whatever town we're in, we'll pray and we'll just ask God to work in their lives, in their bodies. Well, we were in a, in a, in a small town outside of Birmingham, England, a little village called Tamworth, and setting up for a concert. It was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And apparently the phone in the office rang and somebody comes walking on the stage and says, we're looking for a guy by the name of Wayne Kent. I said, that's me. And they said, well, there's a guy calling you from the U.S. right now. And so I get on the phone, it's Don. And he's my boss, so he's telling me about this, that, and the other, and, you know, and so forth. And, so, and he says, by the way, is, uh, is Leslie around? And I said, oh, yeah, she's back on stage. He said, can you go get her? And so I bring her back. He says, Laura wants to talk to her. And so they get on the phone and Les goes, hi. And Laura goes, Leslie, you're never going to believe this, but... I'm having a baby. We're pregnant. Can you imagine how excited? Can you, you could see what it was like, how excited I was when I went back to that stage and said, guess what, guys? They're pregnant. And we learned just two minutes ago. They've been struggling with this for many years. It's a cool story. Well, they had one baby. They had a second baby. They had a little girl and a little boy named Michael. They had a third baby. <laughs> they had another baby, four babies. One of the babies, I can't remember if it was the third or fourth, uh, Laura says to Don in the middle of the night, hey, I think my water's broken, and they're in bed, and, and Don says, okay, don't move, I'm going to go get, jump in the shower, and we'll go to the hospital. If you knew Don, that'd be typical. You know, so he's going to jump in the shower, and, and as he is in the shower, Laura comes in the bathroom and says, I think we've got a problem, and he delivered that baby on the bathroom floor. Called the doctor, and the doctor said, don't bring the baby in, I'm coming to you. Do you think? I think so. So then they had baby number five. And uh, he knows, by the way, I'm telling you this story today because he and I chatted about it this week. And I, I, I said to him, Don, uh, how many more are you planning to have? And he said, well, Wayne, you guys prayed so hard. I'm just afraid I'm, I'm not willing to turn off the tap yet. <laughs> if you're here today, and this is an issue for you or someone in your family. Be people of faith. Let's pray about it. And let's walk it out. Let's do life with some congruity because that's what James is all about. He's saying, if you're going to declare that God is involved in your life, then walk it out. Live your life accordingly, even when it's really hard and even when it feels like you're Abraham going up on the mountain. Because here's the reality, friends. If we say that we believe and that we're accepting grace, then that should impact our walk. Because if it doesn't, then we get down to Pershing in 51 and we look back at what we said we were going to do and how we were going to live. And we look here and we realize that we've just lied and what does that do to our souls? It cuts into our souls a little bit and we go, oh man, they're chipping away. I've chipped away at who I really am and what I say I want to be and who I'm gonna, how I'm going to live. And the result is that, truth be told, in the chipping of my soul, I realized I'm really a hypocrite. And I got to tell you, friends, that's really new learning for me in the last couple of weeks as I've been preparing this message. 
Because any time I've read James 2 in the past, and I went back and even looked at some of the times I've preached on this passage, I've legitimately used this passage for us to talk about how do we handle people who are cold and hungry. Fair enough. But in many ways, that's just a side note. Because it's not really about just the cold and hungry. It's really about what we read in verse 20, 24. What does it say there in verse 24? Did you take a look again? A person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. It's about hypocrisy. It's about you and me, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, living the way in which God would call us to live. So I've got some ways in which maybe you might want to think about that this week and ways that, some takeaways, if you will, that you could probably put into play. For example, this week, uh, if we're going to say we're going to follow Christ and he's, how, how would Jesus respond to some of the situations we're in, okay? Um, for example, say you're standing in line at the teller, you know, in the line at the bank this week. Uh, and I know a way in which our culture works. Uh, you know, we, we have this social contract with everybody that who's ever there first gets to go first. But what about if you didn't go first? Because Jesus said the first will be last. <laughs> what if I went last? Or you're going to go to Kroger sometime this week or Walmart. And maybe you run in for a very brief, you know, milk and bread and Snow's coming or whatever. I don't know. And you go, and you've got, you've got four items, and that's all you've got. And you don't even need a basket. You can just kind of hold them there. And you go up to the, the checkout, and you see the guy behind you has 75 items with two kids, and they're screaming their heads off. And you know that the sooner they get out of the store, the easier his life is going to be. What do you do? Do you go, well, I'll get through quickly. Pardon me, but I'll get through quickly. Or do you walk, do you step out of the way and say, Go ahead, go ahead. And you stand there for 10 minutes. Could you give up 10 minutes to say, I'll be kind this week? Or, let me ask you this, how did it work when you got to church today? Because who are we kidding? Is it cold outside today, right? It's a wee bit cold. For some of you today, I suspect, you pulled in the parking lot on the south end there and you came and you drove around and there was a spot right close to the building, and you go, I am living right for God today, because look what God has provided for me, and you nipped right in there, and you're thinking, thank you, Lord, I didn't have to walk through the cold, some other poor sucker's going to do that. <laughs> what would it be like to say, okay, I can, you know, and I know some people can't do that because of physical limitations, I get that, fair enough, but for those of us who are able to say, hey, I'll just park in the back every week. I can handle an extra 30 seconds across the parking lot. Hmm. Why would we do stuff like that? Well, Jesus told us to. These people came to Jesus one day and they said, Jesus, how will we know if we're really, what does it mean to really follow God? And what does it mean to please God? And and he came and said, well, there are two things. It, it, it all boils down to this. He said, there are two things. You've got to love the Lord your God with all your soul, heart, and mind. With every fiber of your being, love God. And then, oh, by the way, love your neighbors yourself and park as close to the building as you can. No, he didn't say that. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then love your neighbors yourself. And your neighbor would really like to park up front and would prefer you to be at the back. So go park in the back. 
Does that make sense? We don't like to hear it when it's seven degrees out, but it's the right thing to do, right? See, it's about, God, thank you for, I, I, I have this faith. I believe that you sent your son Jesus, and now I will respond by living in grace and extending it to other people. It does involve, by the way, people who are cold and hungry. I get that. And we have ways around here that you can help out in that endeavor if you want. We've got like a max program that we join with other churches in the city where we say, we don't, want, we don't want Christians to get scammed when they give to hungry people or cold people. And the churches join together through the max program and we give to that. You could give to that if you want. And we join together as churches to make certain that person's asked us and that church and that church and we kind of coordinate together. We have the same thing in our own congregation. We call it local outreach where people give to the, that particular fund, and then that is distributed from the church to members of our congregation or just families over at Parsons, and that's pretty well where that's restricted to. So yeah, you can serve the poor and hungry that way. Maybe you could say, I can serve in other ways, then you could find, I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, if you look in the connect wall as you walk out in the lobby this, this morning, there are places out there where there's help needed, like at the Good Samaritan Inn or you know, other places around town where we're doing work uh, to serve other people, and some of it is in all kinds of different ways. You could go find that out. Um, join Robert in his service at the hospital, by all means. Perhaps could I even suggest this, um, particularly in this service and the next service. Uh, last weekend, we had more people in church than we've had ever. Just in this room alone, we had over a thousand people. In this room alone, that's before you start counting kids. And uh, we, we have a problem coming very quickly that we're out of room. And so uh, we're also aware that in this part of the country, if you ask guests when they want to go to church, they quickly say somewhere between 9 and 11, uh, kind of in the pews you're sitting in, kind of in the parking spots where you're parked. Ooh, it feels weird already, doesn't it? You could serve by saying, I'll go to one of the less popular services. You might consider that, all right? Just for a period of time. We have some, some really cool ideas coming away in which we're going to solve all this. But for the next few weeks, we just say, hey, we don't have kids or our kids could go to another service. You get the idea. What, what, I'm, what I'm trying to get you to think about is, could I live my life as if there was a bumper sticker right here that said, follower of Jesus Christ? Could I live my life as if I was wearing a shirt that said, I attend First Christian Church and be proud to wear it. Hmm. Can I tell you, uh, you remember the guy, 51 and Pershing, cigarette butts, I th thought, well, that's going to only happen ever once. Not true. About six weeks ago, <laughs> I was um, in the lineup for the drive-thru at McDonald's. Salad, no fries. <laughs> David. My doctor, right over there, okay. <laughs> Salad, no fries. So, uh, you know, I, I pull up, and there's a lady that pulls up right behind me. I mean, right in the other lane. You know, there are these two lanes, and there's kind of, again, this social contract where whoever gets finished with the order first goes through first, and the other person comes in behind. And it was lunch hour, and so there were lots of cars and lots of moving pieces and everything. And so I'm getting a fairly easy lunch. She's got a long extended lunch. And, you know, you kind of look over to kind of nod to say who's going to go first. You get the idea, right? And so it's my right to go first. 
And I've already inched forward when she's still ordering. So from, for all intents and purposes, there's not enough room for her to come and slip in around me. All right? So I'm thinking, okay, that's cool. And so we're going around the building. And, and, and I'm, I'm there. And, and she's finishing ordering. And she's getting really close. And I look over. And she's... I, I can see her eyes kind of coming. But she won't turn her face and look at me. I'm thinking, she's going to push on through. No. Nah, there's hardly enough room. Sure enough. And I'm going, okay, it's all right. And so she pushes on through, and she's there. And I look at her bumper sticker. <laughs> I attend ABC Church. She, I'm not going to tell you the name of the church. And sure enough, she's, attend, she's telling everybody she attends another church for band. She's pushing in line. We are not buying bumper stickers. <laughs> we are not doing it. Because I don't know how you're going to act. I don't know how I'm going to act. I pray we act better. Which brings me to just one final thing that you might want to pray, might want to do, and that is, can I invite you to be people of prayer? When I say pray, can I ask you to specifically this week pray? Because this is a very quiet, confidential prayer again. That... Okay, I've received grace. I, I believe that in faith. I believe that. And I'm walking it out at McDonald's or wherever. At F P F Pershing in 51. But God, there are some people who, because of their struggle with inability to have children, it's really hard for them right now. And would you be gracious enough this week just to pray that about 9 to 12 months from now, we'd have a whole new crop of babies in the nursery? It's not like we are short down there by any means. <laughs> We, we, we had 137 of them there last weekend. That's my, I think was the count, 137. So we've, we've got plenty of babies. But there are some who say, I wish the 138th was mine. Let's pray about that this week and believe God for that. It's a quiet walking out, but it's still walking it out. So would you pray with me right now? Lord, I pray for my friends in this room right now. <laughs> We really do want to do life in a way that reflects grace. God, why is it that you chose us to know you? Why is it that you brought circumstances into our lives that brought us into this room today to experience this call to live our lives differently and to experience the work of Christ in us again? Give us, Lord, the temperature, the ability to kind of be a thermostat in the world around us that we can judge situations and say, okay, this is right, this is not right. And we can temper those moments and we can be your agents. And Lord, we never want to be at the corner of Pershing and 51 and make the wrong choice. But then, Lord, we never want to be in our homes and make the wrong choice or at work and make the wrong choice. We never want to be in front of our computer screens and make the wrong choice, God. We want, to, we, want to, we want to take on who you are in us and then live it out. And then, Lord, particularly this morning, in light of what just this James passage and perhaps the stories I've told today, for couples in this room or couples within our families, God, who are just saying, why is it not working right? Or, Lord, for those who say it's, it didn't work right and now it's too late, God, for all. There's all kinds of variations in there. 
Lord, we pray for babies. We pray for children. And whether they come biologically or whether they come through the marvelous gift of simply being placed in people's hands through adoption. Lord, we're believing today that we're going to see this play out in new ways. And uh, give us courage for all that, God. Give those couples courage and then give us courage, God, to walk with them and then give us courage, God, to, um, to be different in a world that really often wants to push in line. Huh. We'll choose, Lord, to stand back and say, go ahead. Help us in this endeavor, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm inviting you to stand together, please, friends, today. And I, please don't leave for just a couple minutes. Because what we're about to do is extremely important. As a congregation, we believe in prayer. And so what we're going to do is we're going to have some church leaders here at the front of this room. If you're here today and you say, hey, Wayne, I got this going on or I got that going on. This is really good and I want to pray about that and thank God for that. Or this is really bad and I need to pray about that. We'd like to pray with you about that. Kind of put some language to to that stuff. Maybe you're here today and say, hey, it's I've never walked with Christ. It's been a long time since I really had any sense of how to do that. And I, I just need to kind of get that started. We'd like to pray with you as well. Not in some top-down way, but coming alongside you and saying, let's work on this. And so what's going to happen is the congregation is going to worship and support those prayers with some profound worship before God. And the attention is not to be on you in any way if you step forward, but more so to declare the holiness and our hope in God. And as they do that in worship, you're invited to come. You come at this time, please.